Welcome to Ethics Today. This is a program where we talk to people about ethical issues that are going on in our society. And today's topic is hunting ethics. And my guest is Jay Anglin. He's the um, owner operator of Anglin Outdoors, the fishing guide service located in Northern Indiana, Southern Michigan. Kind of, I think you guide a lot in the Great Lakes and then tributary streams. Is that right, Jay? Yeah, that's correct. And then, um, and Jay is also an outdoor writer. And uh, Jay, could you just talk a little bit more about your background, what you do, where people might find some of your writings and so forth? Yeah, uh, currently I'm pretty often, you'll find me on the uh, Ducks Unlimited website, uh, occasionally on the mag in the magazine. Um, I've been published a few times in the National Wild Turkey Federation's magazine um, in the last, you know, six months. Um, but I've been writing since high school. I wrote for the school newspaper in high school, the school newspaper in college. Uh, I work for Traditions Media, which is a huge uh, PR uh, firm that writes for the out a lot of different outdoor brands that everybody would recognize. So I'm, you know, I'm a fairly prolific writer, um, which has become a lot easier these days because with laptops and, you know, the ability to work remotely, I've written some pretty cool stuff sitting in my car waiting, you know, at the boat ramp for clients. So, uh, yeah, you know. Well, we... We really met um, many, maybe 15 to 20 years ago, quite a while ago, on the uh, duckboats.net page, which was a form for um, uh, people who build duck boats. And um, at that time, I really enjoyed some of the posts you made that were talking about kind of uh, controversial issues that arise in hunting, uh, and mainly with, with hunting ethics, kind of behavior of, of people. And... Uh, and then we got together, we did some hunting together on the Upper Mississippi Refuge one time, and you gave a presentation to our local Trout Unlimited Club. And so we, we've been in touch a few times over the years. And I just thought you would be a good person to talk to about what's going on recently with hunting ethics. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot here to cover. We can, obviously can't cover everything, but um, it, it seems to me that there's a change taking place and kind of the norms of the behaviors of, of many of the people that you encounter, especially on public lands. And um, I'm just really curious about what you've been seeing as somebody who does both guiding and then you do a, you do a lot of hunting, both deer hunting and, and waterfowl on public lands also. What, what are you seeing out there? Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I try to not be like that, you know, the grandpa in the yard screaming, get out of my yard. But um, you know, there's a couple generations here that have lost sort of touch with, um, the tradition, uh, not, not all of them, of course, but, uh, uh, enough of them that it's alarming sort of lost touch with, um, you know, not just ethics, but just how you, uh, interact with your fellow outdoorsmen. I mean, we have to share a fairly finite space. Uh, and, and especially when you're you're talking about uh, public land and whether that's, you know, obviously rivers and lakes are fairly public overall. But, you know, when it comes to hunting, you know, a lot of the spots that we hunt are public. And uh, whether that's a draw situation where we have to put in ahead of time or go to a, a lottery in the morning or it's something that's just wide open, like you find, for example, in Wisconsin, a lot of places where you just go. Um, there's sort of this adversarial uh approached by so many hunters and fishermen now and with the advent of uh the internet and in particular social media you know those those little things that were maybe 
sort of notable before sometimes like on an opening weekend or in a busy area or a prime Saturday in the middle of the season, you know, you might see a few couple guys that you're like, man, look at that guy. But now it seems like there was, there's this incentive to be that guy um, to at, you know, do better at all costs. um, You know, ignore the ramifications of insulting somebody else or trying to steal their spot, you know, cause I'm better. I have better stuff. I mean, you know, as a guide, I'm so well prepared and I have, you know, probably overall a better approach because of my knowledge base, because I'm a veteran guide. But I still, you know, I'm very cognizant of the fact that a guy worked all week and he or he took a day off or it's a Saturday morning. He has a ton of things to do at home, mow the lawn, honeydews, go to the kids ball game. Who am I to stop him from fishing? Even if his skill levels aren't anywhere near anything like mine or hopefully what my clients might, you know, uh, you know, t- you know t- uh, how they would fish a, a, in a given situation. I'm very cognizant of it. I've always tried to cooperate. And what I see is the average person is li- literally stunned when I say, hey, where do you want to fish, bub? I'll let you fish that and I'll go fish that. And they're stunned that a guy like me would even say hi to him, let alone try to like share the place. And so it's frustrating, Rick. It, it really is. It's, it's, um, and I think part of it's upbringing, but I think it has a lot more to do with, you know, or how we uh, nurture, you know, people coming up through the ranks when I say upbringing. And it doesn't have to be your father, your mother. It can be your, your mentor, you know, it can be your peers, but it just seems like it's just rampant. It's, it's just, just, it's ubiquitous. Everywhere I go, I go out West, I go out East, I go to Canada. It doesn't matter where. It just seems like there's always this, this overlying, you know, sort of bummer, you know, that, oh, wow, those guys are going to, you know, screw this up for us, you know, and it, it's really unfortunate. Well, it's a, there's this attitude of competitiveness that is really at odds with what most of us talk about when we, when we recall some of our best hunting experiences. Um, they're often shared with, with either good friends or family members and so forth. And it seems like there's all these opportunities in the field to to meet new people and to make friends. And yet if we don't already know somebody, we, we get into this defensive mode right away. And, um, and I wonder if there's something that we're doing that is, that is encouraging that. Um, and let me back up here just a little bit. I mean, when, usually when we talk about hunting ethics, we talk about like fairly well-defined rules about not trespassing, respect, you know, other people's properties, don't break the law, you know, um, uh, um, know what you're shooting at before you shoot. There's a number of things. And a lot of this is taught, for example, in the, the hunter education courses and so forth, right? Um, but then there's all these situations you get involved in in the field that are not well-defined, that you wouldn't even anticipate before you get in them, right? And they, they often involve, um, in some ways, some kind of politeness or some kind of understanding of how you interact with others. And sometimes I don't know if if what I'm dealing with is just somebody with a really bad attitude or somebody who's just ignorant of what the customs are, what they're supposed to be doing. You know, that's a good point because in the beginning, it goes back to that sort of um, uh, that mentoring, um, you know, because there's all these incredible uh, avenues for that now. You know, a lot of these conservation agencies have special events for you know, like DU Green Wings and, you know, the National Wild Turkey Federation, et cetera, you know, they have these things. And the, each state really has a drive to promote 
ethics and, and safety, et cetera. Um, you know, there's there a lot more controls now than there were before. So, you know, as far as being sort of, you know, ignorant to it, um, I mean, that's gotta be fairly willful because if you're like not seeing the big picture now or someone isn't saying, hey, you know, you, you should you should go take this class or you should maybe you should check this out. These guys are really show you the way a little bit. Um, I, I really don't know. I, I, again, I go back. I know I sound like, the, again, the grandpa in the yard. Get out of my yard. But the social media thing, the drive. I mean, I know some pretty darn good guys. I mean, as far as hunters go in particular, but fishermen as well, who post on social media multiple times daily with hero shots and and it's it's like an addiction you know and i've even been called by shops over the years like are you still in business you're not posting anything <laughs> well i'm not posting anything because there's so many people cyber scouting now i'm just trying to protect what i have a little bit which which then that takes into you know so many people utilize this you know these these technologies to you know, figure out where to go, when to go. And that's all fine and good. But when you have, instead of having two or three guys sort of getting, you know, that intel and gathering it, and you have, instead you have dozens or even hundreds, I mean, the, the pressure on these places is just, it's, in, it's immense. So the overall experience for everybody is eroded to the point where a lot of guys, I think I mentioned this in the past with you, a lot of guys or a lot of, you know, outdoors people, whether it's, you know, an older guy like, you know, it's been hunting for three or four decades or, or a guy that just got into it. At the end of the day, they look back and they're like, man, that was really frustrating. And so what you have is you have people that potentially can really kind of carry the torch for this, this tradition, you know, in this country, this heritage. And they're just washing out, you know, they just give up. They're like, this is too frustrating. You know, I'm tired of spending all this money and time and, taking a whole weekend and, and, and at the end of the weekend, I'm just frustrated. So, um, you know, as far as ignorance, you know, back to what your original question was, I mean, I, I, I do think it is a lot of times ignorance, but I also think it's kind of willful. It's not like we're not doing our job to try to nurture, you know, that mindset. I mean, I think it's better than ever. There's so many ways to learn. And yet we have these people that just seem to have like this, you know, such a selfish take on everything in life. And of course, with hunting and fishing, um, it, it just comes along for the ride. I really think it's just a societal thing, really. Yeah, you know, yeah. Some, and sometimes I'm convinced it's not ignorance. I, last year, I was hunting um, an area, backwaters of Mississippi, uh, duck hunting. And I was, I was heading out to a, a, a spot that I, you know, I'd, that I'd been to several times before. And it's in an area of um, where there's a lot of wild rice and there aren't a lot of good spots where you can get a boat and have, have a pretty good line. Uh, but there's also a no wake zone through this particular area. So I slowed my weight, boat way down. I'm, I'm going slow enough to not to create a wake. And I have a guy come up in, with a mud motor and zoom right past me, huge wake. Um, and, uh, you know, 200 yards ahead takes that spot. And I'm thinking, well, this is a guy who hunts a lot. He clearly knew exactly what he was doing. And that's why he passed me and, you know, and got around just so he could get to that one spot. Um, but there's, 
and that sort of thing. I mean, that's it's not problematic. I mean, I I wasn't going to cause a conflict. Um, I didn't didn't of course I didn't approve of his action. I thought it was a, a, a dumb and inconsiderate thing to do. Um, but there's other cases, and I'll give you an example. And I'm just kind of curious as a fishing guide, like what do you do in cases like this? I I was fishing this summer, and I'm, I'm working my way upstream, uh, fishing for trout. And it's a fairly well-known stream, but I, I, I looked before I parked my car and I got out and started going, I looked and there was nobody parked for a couple miles up the stream. So I was pretty sure it hadn't been fished yet that day. And I was doing all right, I'm working my way up. And suddenly there's a guy turned a corner in the stream and there's a guy who's about 30 yards ahead of me. And he's just getting his line out, just rigging up his rod. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to just follow behind him and I don't want to play that leapfrog game. So I thought, I'll just, I'll just walk another, you know, a couple hundred yards up the stream and go from there. So I, I get up onto the bank, I'm walking along, and I notice his car is parked way up ahead. So he had parked up ahead and walked downstream to the point just in front of me so that he could start fishing upstream. And I was thinking that's either a really rude thing to do or he just has no clue just inexperienced, doesn't know what he's doing. And, and in those kinds of cases, I'm really not sure what, how to approach it. Do I just go and talk to him and try to educate him a little bit? Or do I assume he's just rude and ignore him and, and go on? It's a, it's a conundrum. It's a tough one. Um, I deal with it um, almost daily. Really? Uh, yeah, especially, you know, if you're fishing a steelhead river the size of, say, um, you know, I guide on the Dowagiac in southwest Michigan a lot. It's a, it's a tributary to the St. Joe River, uh, but there's the Pier Marquette, uh, you know, rivers that size, moderate to even small, you know, more like a, a large trout stream, but really, you know, with steelhead salmon. So there's really, again, a finite amount of places, you know, and you have your milk run. The other guides I've known for decades, we settle into this um, – sort of regimen where and I know this guy likes this spot and this guy likes this spot and they know I like this spot. So in case, unless there's some sort of shakeup that we communicate that morning or during the day, we kind of go to our spots. Any new guides kind of fall in line. You have to kind of square them away pretty quick. Um, but there's always new anglers. You know, everybody has a boat now or a raft or equipment that we, I dreamed of having my entire life as a fly fisherman, a drift boat, a raft, a jet sled for fishing big waters. And now everybody has one. It's, you know, just, it's not just guys. I have to have the guys that see on the river have better equipment than I do. Um, and they're just weekend warriors, quote unquote. So um, I guess, you know, dealing with that, that you almost have to take it on a case by case basis. Um, when you look at a guy, if it looks like he intentionally, you know, cut in front of you, I call it, we call it low holing on the river. So if you're in a spot and you're working your way down to a bend, it's sort of established. I'm working into that spot. Okay. I'm, I'm working my clients into the spot and a guy cuts right in front of me and drops his hook and starts fishing. That's low holing. That's going to require me to make some sort of a comment. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, run up there and go, Hey pal, it can be, Hey man, just for future reference, you know, um, I'll, you know, if you got my back, I got yours, you know, and that's usually how things work. Um, I noticed in bass fishing, for example, I used to guide a, and manage a private lake up here in northern Indiana that was incredible fishing. And our bass fishermen 
we're, would for the most part get along, but occasionally we'd get these hot shots in there to fish and they love to do that. They'd cut in front of you all the time. And I finally just made a rule. You get in the cycle, it's counterclockwise. If you're not happy with the cycle, then you can put your boat on the trailer and head on home. And I, I had the pleasure of being in charge of the place, you know, and some guys would get really irritated, but that, that sort of comes from that whole tournament contest sort of mentality. And I think it's been pervasive in everything, you know, again, it's selfishness. I mean, I would love to walk up on a guy and be like, Oh man, I didn't see you coming and sit down on a rock and watch him catch a 20 inch brown trout out of one of the creeks in the driftless, you know, up by you. But to me, that's satisfying. Yeah. yeah. You know, Hey, you know, do you have any tippet or do you have a fly? I mean, I want to help. Yeah, man, here, look at my box. Take what you want. Use my rod. I don't care. I'll just, unless you don't want me to watch, I'll just sit and watch you work this hole. That's a good spot. To me, that's like the classic heritage of the outdoors in North America. You know, we're conservationists. We're, um, we mentor up and coming generations. And it's, again, it's just getting lost it's, it's so competitive it's so selfish and and like i when i mentioned willful ignorance i'm not just talking about somebody who's trying to ignore you know oh i don't want to be involved with this or that or the other thing i'm talking about guys that are like saying i really don't care it's all about me it's it's like they're willfully being ignorant to the fact that it's unethical to do some of the things they do you know does that make sense well yeah and i'm i'm i guess what i'm wondering is kind of what what we can do about it. I mean, I find I'm involved with our local Trout Unlimited chapter. And I think like one of the things we do there is try to hold each other accountable, but also offer opportunities for, you know, fishing with other people. So you can kind of mentor people into what's customary and expected. Right. And then, and then there's the kind of, there's this effect of social norming where okay, you kind of know what's appropriate and what's not, and you want to be accepted by the groups. So if you're a member of a group like that, you're going to act fairly consistent with the norms. Um, but not everybody is member of groups like that, right? And and um, and I don't know what you do with, like can, can larger organizations like Ducks Unlimited and so forth, can they do anything about this? I seem to see more, like in the, in the DU Magazine, there seems to be more emphasis on hunting ethics over the last few years, kind of recognizing that this is becoming a problem. Well, there's certainly, it's such a, again, it goes back to, um, you know, this drive from these fish and wildlife agencies, the feds and every state, um, these conservation organizations, you know, the, the ones that really jump out to me, again, are, are TU, DU, NWTF, and there are others that also and are doing a good job with it. But, um, uh, you know, you know, back to what you mentioned about t uh, Trout Unlimited, I guess I can't think of one more, another organization that has more um, you know, ability or, or, or at least programs designed to um, mentor or, or, you know, every chapter I've ever been associated with, I've donated, a, I've lost count of how many trips I've donated for, for fundraising and stuff. And um, I mean, they have outings, you know, and they get together and you know, there's a camaraderie and, and guys are going on trips together and they're forming little, yeah, it kind of get, it gets clicky sometimes, but the, the bottom line is there's they're on the same mission. It's like to you know do things right and and do it in in a way that's cognizant of conservation issues and contribute to those you know restorations et cetera stream management. But you know again, there's so many different avenues for it and there's article after article like you mentioned Ducks Unlimited magazine, the number one outdoor magazine 
uh, in North America right now, or at least in the United States, you know, we're pushing 700,000 issues uh, a, a month or, or a quarter, um, or yeah, however many issues they send out. Yeah, it's like almost, it's like 670 or something. Um, but the point is, um, I don't know. I mean, the states are working at it. It, it, again, I think it's just societal and it's like we have to change not just this, what we're talking about. We have to tell people, you know, stop cutting off people in the, you know, in, in, in the passing lane. Stop, you know, all these kinds of things. It all goes together. It's just, it, I wish we could change it quicker. I think we're doing a pretty good job of trying, you know. Um, so I want to ask you, it, when you're operating as a guide, do you ever have uh, situations where um, you have a you have a client who who breaks the law in some way violates one of the one of the game laws uh, and uh, and then you have to figure out how are you going to handle it. Um, I'm just you know I've I've run in I've done it myself I've you know and um, you know and it's there's always a question you know like what's what's the appropriate response to this do you self report you know and um, and I'll give you an example. A few minutes, I ran into this with my kid the first time I took my kid deer hunting. Um, but I don't know how you handle this with other adults. With kids, it's pretty easy, you know. You and 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 you're pretty sure. Oh, well, I'll tell you. Like my son, the first time the youth hunt, he had um, he had shot a he had shot a buck, and uh, but he also had a doe permit. So we went out again for to fill the doe permit, and um, he uh, saw a small spike buck. Uh, against a backdrop of corn stubble and just didn't see the antlers. And I didn't take the time, this is partly my fault, I didn't take the time to look th through binoculars real carefully. From from what I saw, I thought, you know, it was a doe too. And I just asked him if he was sure it was a doe and it turned out it wasn't. So he had two bucks. And so we called the game warden and, um, you know, and, and game warden was really good, really understanding and, you know, just talk to him about the seriousness of making sure what you shoot at and so forth and and then took the deer and and um gave it uh to a uh, you know food donation um but for adults for most of us also the penalty can be so severe and seems so arbitrary that it is really tough to know sometimes you know what you do in the case where you make a legitimate mistake so i'm just <laughs> curious of what did you ever run into this as a guide and what do you do about it? Uh, yeah, 20, oh, yeah, we're, I'm pushing 25 years hunting and fishing guide. And, um, I've had some pretty sketchy stuff go down. I've never had to, um, thankfully because I was being observant and, and very cautious. Usually you can get a good feel for, you know, if somebody is, is prone to these things quickly. Mm -hmm. And you have to stay on them. Um, you know, snagging fish is a classic. And if you were to go to Michigan today to all the salmon rivers up north, um, and you could somehow just freeze frame everything and then have some sort of way to zoom in on each fish that's hooked, I would guess 80% or more of the fish that are hooked this very minute are foul hooked. Really? Yeah. Now, yeah. If you hook them in the mouth, we call it flossing or lining. You know, you hook them in the mouth, around about the mouth. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, it, it, this is why I don't guide salmon, frankly, this time of year. Um, because it's such a, it's such, a, it's so alluring for a guy to be standing there. He's, you know, again, this is his one big day. 
he's waiting in his gorgeous setting, this beautiful river, and there's dozens or hundreds of salmon. And they're, you know, they're huge. They're 15, 20 pound salmon or bigger. And, you know, I always say fly anglers in particular have to learn how to take no for an answer. Fish are spawning. They don't show any interest. You move on. You try to find a big male that'll chase a streamer and snap at it because he's being protective. That's about the only way to do it. Early on, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you can get him to eat things. Right now, you can still get a few to eat. But if you have a guy that's just ripping all day long, I just stop it. You know, you know they have a they have a saying for it. You know, the Michigan twitch, or the they have different names. You know, where you, at the end of every drift, you pop your rod because chances are there's a fish there. I just stop it. I nip it in the butt quick. I won't tolerate it. It's created a lot of strife um, over the years. I've had guys just flat out tell me to get bent and, you know, let's call it a day. Um, that's okay. If that's what you want to do, go, go find somebody else that's unethical. But, you know, as far as like an actual act of, um, I mean, in that case, you know, if a salmon is foul hooked, even if it's accidental, I mean, I just say, break it off, break it off right away, break it off. We're not going to mess around. We're not going to land it, pretend like it's, you know, we're still going to release it. No, we break it off quickly. Um, you know, but I've had situations where guys do things in hunting where they raise their gun on things that are fairly unimaginable. I guess the worst one I ever had was I was guiding a pheasant trip and I had a guy shoot at a bald eagle, mm. literally. Wow. Soaring overhead. I go, wow, look at this eagle. And I heard shot hit the bird's wings. It was probably 75 to 80 yards over us. I almost tackled the guy. You know, I mean, I grabbed the gun, opened it up, popped the shell the empty and the loaded shell out as an over and under. And I said, if you ever do that again, I'm going to break this gun over your head. And he didn't understand. Like, he literally, he came from a place where shooting a bald eagle would be really cool because you could get it stuffed and put it on your mantle, you know? Um, and I had to educate him. Um, if that bird would have been injured and wounded, I would have a hundred percent called, you know, I'd have called it in. What, what do you do? It was fine. It didn't even phase it. You know, it flew around, flapped its wings, landed in a tree, flew off. I mean, I could tell it was healthy and thankfully it was, but things like that, man, I mean, that's just inexcusable. And you know, what are the odds that I say, wow, look at that beautiful bald Eagle. Bam. I mean, come on, really? And so those are the people that just, honestly, I don't want to be around. I don't want to guide them. I don't want to be in the same field with them. Um, and that's tough when you're a guide because there's a lot of pressure to succeed and if you have that guy and he's a repeat customer and he's bringing back clients, if you don't have rock solid ethics, it's real easy to get tempted into being a guy that allows goofy stuff to happen. And you see it every year in particular with waterfowl, with baiting and, you know, that's wanton waste is another one. It just, I just, yeah, it's unfortunate. Well, and something like waterfowl ID is, is really difficult. You have to be pretty experienced, and, and so, so you have limits, say, on, on wood ducks. You, you know, you have mallards and gadwall. Very difficult to tell apart unless you, you know, you've been hunting for some time. And, um, you know, limits, say, on hen mallards, things like that. Very easy to go over the limit if you're not careful. Um, and, but it seems to me a lot of those are, they can be legitimate mistakes. You can be very careful and still make mistakes once in a while. And that's very different than intentionally disregarding the, what the rules are. And again, it's, it's willful ignorance. I mean, if you can't read the regs, if you hire a guide in your fishing and hunting and you have no idea 
I, like to me, I can't imagine spending four or $500 on somebody and not vetting that person, A, and then B, like looking at the regs and just saying, oh, okay, well, we can do this, we can do that. And just having, I mean, to me, I should tell people, hey, before we go out, I want you to read and send them a link, but I don't, um, you know, I, I should maybe. Um, you know, and back to the waterfowl thing, a friend of mine um, in this early teal season that just ended, he'd never teal hunted before and he has a really great spot and he wanted to take his nephew hunting. And I said, well, goose season's open and there, there's, there's teal, you know, there's a lot of teal around. And I talked to him a couple of days later. I said, how'd it go? He goes, well, he goes, we, we shot one goose and we really, that was cool. He shot it. And then he said, you know, I think I had some of those blue wing teal come in. I mean, they have blue wings, right? And I said, yeah, on their shoulder, you know, the back of their wing. And he goes, well, I just, there was so many wood ducks flying around and there was so many, we saw some of those teal and I just didn't want to take any chances and certainly be in a position where I had to explain to him that we shot the wrong bird. And I said, that's really amazing, Mike. I'm really impressed, man. I said, I wish I'd have been there so I could have called him out for you. But there's just, you know, that to me is just critical that you have that mindset. Um, you know, we can't shoot wood ducks in early teal season in Indiana and uh, he wasn't going to make a mistake. So uh, there are, there are a lot of us that still think that way, fortunately. Yeah, and it's so crucial then to take for for people like that to be mentoring youth who are who are going out. Um, you know, and I I find this in all kinds of um, situations, like in businesses. Uh, it, ter it turns out people's lifelong attitude towards whether businesses are ethical or, or unethical depends mostly on their first work experience, and um, that sets their expectations for kind of how they look at it, and also kind of what kind of organization they end up feeling comfortable in, right? So yeah. I think that early mentoring experience in hunting is really crucial. Yeah, I agree. And I've mentored so many, you know, youth hunters and anglers and um, introduced lots and lots of uh, young hunters in particular, but also anglers um, to their first, whatever, first fly caught, smallmouth bass, trout, steelhead, whatever, you name it. Um, hunting is a whole different animal because it's one thing to get hooked. You know, I look at it like this worst case scenario, a kid drives a hook into my arm or my ear, which has happened. Um, hunting can be much more profoundly a dangerous, obviously for the occupants or the, uh, the, the other people with the, the youth hunter, but also to themselves. I mean, you know, it's just dangerous. It's a deadly weapon and, and understanding the ethics and then also being cognizant of all those issues associated with mistakes or, or lack of gun safety and, and all that and awareness. Um, I've done pretty well. There's some pretty serious young hunters out there that I, besides my own kids um, who are avid hunters, but I think of guys that have, and now they've gone bear hunting, you know, and they've gone on great big trips here and there and with their buddies and stuff. And they, the first time they ever pulled the trigger on a living animal was with me, literally almost, almost holding on to them and explaining to them turkeys you know, for example, um, waterfowl and turkeys. I mean, I got a lot of turkey hunting and um, I have adult hunters. And, um, you know, uh, a lot of times some of these R3 guys refer to, to, to them as adult onset hunters. Mm. You know, they're in their 20s and 30s. They read an article about it. Maybe they watched Meat Hunter or whatever. And they're like, this is pretty cool. I want to do this. And, you know, they shouldn't be embarrassed. You know, there's ways to do it and um, taking them out and explaining everything to them. And of course, 
you know, as adults, they ask more questions and they, and they really want to know and understand the science behind everything. And I've done a ton of that too, you know, and it's really gratifying. I think most guides, successful veteran guides will tell you that's part of the reason they do it. You know, it's almost like a mission um, that starts early on in your guide career. Um, but it doesn't have to, you don't have to be a guide. You can just be a guy that likes to introduce people to it. You know, there's a lot of people like that out there that could easily be guides and do the same thing. You know, um, it's definitely really important that we continue to do that and don't let like YouTube teach them. You know what I mean? Not that there's anything wrong with it to under, you know, to get more, uh, to, to obtain more knowledge, but, um, yeah, real time mentoring is where it's at for sure. Well, I've, I've really enjoyed introducing people to trout fishing and, um, uh, and especially on the streams around here in the Griffless region. And one of the things I, I notice is you, you see a kind of ecological awareness developing people that they didn't have before because um, you know the streams are really pretty but most people's encounter with them is mostly from the road driving by and, and seeing something that looks pretty but then when you when you get serious about fishing suddenly you're down on your hands and knees and you're turning over rocks and you're looking at insects and you're you know the the kind of resolution of your awareness increases dramatically um, and then you start putting the puzzle pieces together as you get a little more involved. And I find that to be maybe the most rewarding thing about introducing somebody to hunting and fishing is to see that ecological awareness arise. I couldn't agree with you more. I've always taken a real scientific approach. You know, I have a biology degree from Northern Michigan University and uh, my dad had a zoology degree from Indiana and early on from Indiana University and early on in my life, you know, he always was trying to promote the concepts of um, you know, not just science, but, but the, the conservation aspect of it. And, and um, you know, I've taken it to the, another level with, with um, my associations with, you know, different conservation organizations and, and trying to, you know, again, you know, make donations, contribute to uh, stream outings, you know, help out, things like that, logistics. I work with Michigan DNR, you know, occasionally. Uh, I'm a member of a of, a, of another group that's, you know, really active with the Dwajak River watershed. And um, when I promote that to people and they, and they do engage with it, I'm really happy because some people don't, you know, you'll say something and they just look at you like, who cares? Um, but if you explain to most people in a way that's exciting and interesting, you know, get some bugs off the bottom of the river and point out the difference between a mayfly and a caddisfly and a stonefly and et cetera, a nymph, you know, um, they, they do. And it, and it helps. And I think that in, in particular, talking about Trout Unlimited, they've done such a great job of doing that and, and, and cultivating that sort of thing. Um, it, it's, it's something that I consider critical and I'm still stunned at the number of guides I meet that don't have any particular special knowledge or, or, uh, you know, uh, interest in it even. And to me, it should be, requisite it should be something that these states require like you have to pass a basic science background test on you know the the biology of a rainbow trout or whatever i mean i think it should i think it should be part of the obtaining your guides license frankly i really do yeah yeah um i'm i'm so what's responsible for shaping your attitude who were who were your early mentors when you started out hunting 
That's a really good question because I'm, I'm very, I know exactly who it was. Um, so my dad was from the east side of Detroit, wasn't an outdoorsman. Um, the Anglin family, you know, farmers in northern Indiana, he'd go to visit them twice a year. And that was about the extent of his outdoors, you know, jumping in a hayloft and you know, running around in the fields. Um, so one of my dad's buddies um, from college and a guy that went to high school with my mom uh, from Detroit, Michigan, or he lived in Birmingham, Michigan. John Norris was sort of a mentor to me, uh, probably the number one influence on my outdoor, you know, endeavors, uh, because I, I showed interest in, okay. Um, you know, reading field and stream magazine and sports of field and as a kid, and then I started getting fly fishermen. So John, I uh, was a member of a really, really, oh, were you at the time? Oh, I was probably nine, 10 years old when it really started to settle in other than just your you boys want to go fishing with the so-and-sos and we'd go to some pond and screw around, you know, with cane poles and bluegills and stuff. I mean, that was always like most kids get that exposure that live in a somewhat rural community, you know, but uh, for me, it was like way more than that. So yeah. Um, my dad, you know, bless his heart and my mom, um, they enabled me and my dad's, you know, um, ability to contact John and say, what do you think? And John would say, you need to do this, this, and this. So really he was the biggest influence. And then later on, we would go to this really um, exclusive club in Northern Michigan and visit them. They were members of, and that was really where I really sunk my teeth into it. Um, it was pretty amazing. And I was very lucky to have that because most people don't. I mean, you know, stock trout, and lakes full of fish, and incredible hunting, um, huge club. And that was really it for me, you know. Um, and, and But again, the ethics and this gun safety and all that were absolutely critical from the get-go um and that was the ethics part really my dad was somewhat uncomfortable with the thought of you know killing animals he wasn't an anti-hunter by any stretch of the imagination he's just a very compassionate guy and and it just wasn't in his wheelhouse okay so i'd come home with stuff and and you know he'd look at it and i'd show it to him and um you know, I could tell sometimes he was kind of uncomfortable. We, my brother and I would invite him to go hunting. He'd say he'd go, and we'd wake him up in the morning, and he'd come up with some cockamamie excuse not to go because he didn't want to see us shoot some mallards in the creek out back or whatever, you know. So whatever, man. You know, he enabled it for me. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously I had other mentors along the way. I could go on and on. But really, you know, John Norris, bless his heart, man. That's where the, that's where the adventure really started right there. Yeah. You know, it's – Aristotle says that we really develop our ethics from the people we most admire when we're youth because we we're continually asking ourselves how can we be like them and so we gradually acquire the character traits of the people we admire and if we're if we're fortunate to have adults in our life at a young age who really are admirable you know who exhibit virtues within a certain area of activity then then we tend to develop them ourselves, but we might not. We might end up admiring people with vices, right? Um, yeah. But I had, I also had, I had a couple of uncles that I hunted with that, and especially one, Bob Perzik, who was, uh, he had really firm ideas about, like, this is acceptable and this isn't. And and if you were going to hunt with them, you, you would abide by anything he said. You know, it, there was no other way about it. Um, and I, I just thought he was great for one thing. He was, he was, he was a really good guy, but he was a terrific hunter. And, um, and so I just, 
just absolutely believed and followed everything he said. And he had the same kind of influence on my brother too. Uh, it was, and so I look back on that and I think, boy, that was, that was just really fortunate. There's no question. And I think it happens more often than not, you know, but you just hope and pray that, you know, for a kid that, for, look at my, use me for an example. My father had tons of friends and, and um, certainly some that were active, you know, hunters and, and anglers. And he could have, you know, shuffled me off to one of them. And I don't know if it was just dumb luck or he was astute enough to know that some of them weren't the kind of guys he wanted me to be mentored by, you know. Um, but I see it in fishing a lot in particular where you have like generations of a given family and really in a region, you'll see like a little regional hotbed of it in certain counties in Michigan, for example, where guys are more prone to be just unethical, you know, snagging, you know, killing over their limit, two a day limits, you know, kicking fish back in the river, you know, like they're kicking a football, things like that. That's that they've learned that they learned it from grandpa and dad and uncle Ed and Billy and the neighbor guy or whatever. So you just hope that each young hunter or an adult onset hunter has that ability to be, you know, uh, mentored by somebody that, like you said, like you had, you were lucky. I was lucky. Some people aren't. And it's not that they, some of them aren't even bad. You know, they're not bad people. It's just how they were taught to do this thing. Right. Um, and some of them might know it's right and, or wrong. And some maybe just think that's the way it's supposed to be done. You know, the laws are kind of like, oh, well, you know, whatever. Um, but again, you know, this is where you join a conservation organization. You read the magazines. You join the committee of a conservation organization, Trout Unlimited, Ducks Unlimited, et cetera. Um, and you learn generally from guys that are more cognizant of these issues. It seems like it's pretty, you know, I know a ton of guys on different committees around the Midwest and there's very, very few of them that aren't just as good as good can be when it comes to the ethics of it and the, and, and the moral, the morality of it, all of it, you know? Yeah. Do, do you have any resources that you could suggest? We'll wrap this conversation up here, but I just uh, resources you could. Uh, are there some magazines that you think are particularly good for young hunters or for even adult hunters who are interested in kind of learning more about kind of what behavior is appropriate or admirable in this setting, or are there certain kind of, are there some websites or books, authors that people should be following? There are. And, you know, it's unfortunate because here I am, you know, I'm like, I should have made a list because there's a lot that there's some that I don't even know about probably. Um, I go back to, you know, if you join Ducks Unlimited or Trout Unlimited, you know, I keep using the same three because it's the ones I associate the most with, but there's others, you know, uh, but National Wild Turkey Federation has an, an incredible amount of outreach uh, with youth hunters and new hunters. And, uh, you know, there's a huge push in this country for, for women, you know, to get uh, involved with hunting in the outdoors. And there's a lot of clubs and different organizations but or, or at least sub organizations from one of these conservation organizations. But if you join these conservation agencies, obviously you're contributing to, to, to conservation, which is critical, especially now more than ever. Um, and, and, you know, uh, wetland, uh, you know, uh, restoration and, and acquisition, et cetera. But 
um, those magazines, like a Green Wing, you know, Ducks Unlimited has Green Wing. You know, they have a special magazine for Green Wings, which are the younger hunters. Um, those are great because, like you said, there's a lot of articles in there. You know, they, they, they teach you about conservation. They teach, teach you about the science of the species that they're, you know, predominantly managing, but also others. Um, and then there's also, you know, obviously some, some safety and ethical stuff that's thrown in for good measure. Um, as far as books go, you know, I can't think of anything right offhand, but I know there's a few out there. I've had clients mention them to me and I can't think of them offhand. It's unfortunate, but there, I don't, I'm sure you have some ideas as well. I'm thinking like, I think Steve Rinell is a pretty good example of somebody who I, I, I like a lot of the things that he talks about and, and, and is, he's very heavy on responsibility and I think has a pretty good reach among young hunters. No question. That's a good one. I mean, he's, he definitely has, he's really been a, a game changer, you know, not to sound like a cliche, but he, when he came on the scene, um, I was, I was excited because I knew he was going to reach a demographic of people that had either no exposure to it or exposure to it and admitting it to your peers would have been, you know, <laughs> good luck. Um, and he's made it mainstream enough that there are people that I would have never, ever, ex you know, expected to be hunters or anglers or involved in the outdoor heritage and they're becoming avid, you know, and, and again, like you mentioned, uh, they're coming from a place that's um, definitely you know, um, they're starting the right way. I guess that's the best way to put it. They're cognizant of these things. So yeah, Steve's a great example. Well, and then I, I'm just thinking out loud here. I think uh, backcountry hunters and anglers too. I think they do a pretty good job of, sure. of this. Um, but I mean, because they're not pushing the competitive aspect of the sport. I think that's, you know, that's kind of what we started out with. And I think there are these people and organizations that are pushing more the, I think, ecological responsibility and um, so forth. So BHA, I think, is a good example of that. Um, sure. But I don't know. I mean, there's, I mean, for every one of those you mentioned, there's all these others that are, you know, TV shows and so forth that are all trophy shots. And, and I I'm just, just, I don't watch them, so I don't know. Yeah, I've actually recorded almost all of them on my DVR and the other day I went through and I think I deleted 80, 90% of them. Um, because a lot of it, you know, I've been in the business long enough and I worked when I worked for traditions, you know, I, I did a lot of the shows I cast and, and, um, um, ATA and of course shot show in Vegas. And these shows are awesome, really good people. I mean, a lot of them are just, you know, they didn't just fall into it. A lot of them are, are, you know, they worked hard to, to make it in, make a living out of it. You know what I mean? Whether it's a product based income or it's, uh, you know, media generated income or whatever, but they're living the, the lifestyle they prefer and they figured out a way to do it and still, you know, feed the family, put tires on the truck. Um, so I was really exposed to the best of the best. I mean, I broke bread with them. I drank beer with them. I mean, it was fun. Um, but again, you know, the, the, the whole idea of a guy going out on a TV show and shooting, you know, well, it was a slow day today. We shot one green head and this nice wood duck and we're going to go home and cook them. It just, that isn't going to sell, you know, you have to have straps, you have to have limits. And I guess as a guide, I'm just as guilty as, 
sort of setting my bar, you know, it, it, you know, in a way that makes me feel like if we didn't do really well, it wasn't that great of a day. That's, and that's a terrible mindset, but it's so pervasive in society that's difficult not to do it, you know, and certainly the expectations of most of my clients are higher than they should be um, on average anyway. So it's unfortunate. Again, it's, I think it's just societal. It's the way we are now as a people, you know. Well, I tell you what, I've just, I'm, I'm so grateful for, you know, to what, how hunting has kind of, what, what it has added to my life, I guess. It's, I think it's really enriched it. But um, I'm, I'm also grateful, I think, for kind of growing older in this sport. I went out this uh, past weekend, was opening waterfall season in Minnesota. And I went out really early, set up and, you know, kind of listened to ducks flying through the air overhead that I couldn't see, you know, because they're in the dark and all these other shorebirds. You listen to the marsh come to life. And, um, and then I shot two ducks I, and just watched. I, sh I shot two because I, I, that's all I'm going to eat, bef I figured, before the next time I hunt. My wife doesn't really like ducks, so it's just me. Kids are gone now. So... I'm not going to fill the freezer with it. I'm just, and, and I don't, I, what I want to have is experiences. That's, I, you know, I tell myself every time I'm hunting for experiences out here and certainly had that. And, um, it's, um, it's amazing. So, um, it's, it's a very enriching thing, but I, I've kind of gotten over the, the need to get limits and, like I guess stoke my ego in that way, and and it's a it's a good feeling. Yeah, and you know I'm I mean frankly I'm not quite there yet, but I do find myself um, as each year goes by having less concern um, for it. Um, you know I've met guys who said, well I used to do it and I was just crazy for it, and then I just kind of decided I didn't need to do it anymore. And I meet them at Ducks Unlimited banquets, you know, where they come and contribute to conservation, but they just don't hunt anymore. Um, or they might go along with like a grandson and just help him, but not actually hunt, that sort of thing. And that's okay. And I think what happens is as, you, as we mature as outdoorsmen and we become, you know, our wisdom increases. And like you said, the experience, watching the sunrise, watching the birds, the insects, um, the butterflies, my, you know, I always point out to guys when we see migrate or monarchs migrating, you know, they're almost always on a Southwest heading. Almost always. They can be fighting a Southwest wind, almost standing still. And by God, they're making, they're going to go Southwest because that's where they go. Um, to me, that stuff is just that. If you took away that stuff, I wouldn't be out there. You right. know, guys talk about working dogs. I know a ton of guys that only hunt so they can work their dogs. That's it. Yeah. That's the kid, you know, and rewarding the dog with a quail or a mallard, you know, is the, or a grouse is that's what makes them happy. Of course, they want to eat the duck or the goose or the whatever. But um, yeah, I definitely think that's the progression. And I, I, I can't say as I'm going to be sad when that happens, but I suspect eventually I'll get there where it's like, okay, I'll take the grandkids and show them how to set up spread and sit back and call a little bit. And I'm just going to set my gun down on the bottom, you know, over here in the corner, and not even put a shell in it. But here's the paradox. I mean, when I when I look back at any hunt, it's it's usually not getting the game that's the highlight of the day. It's something else that's the highlight. And yet, um, I always tell myself, well, if that's the case, why don't I take my duck boat out in the spring for the spring migration? <laughs> yeah, three in the morning or something. But 
I can't get myself out of bed to just go, you know, at three or four in the morning to go out in the marsh and watch. And I don't know why, I think it would be a great experience, but there's something about actually hunting that gets the adrenaline flowing and, and gets you out there. It's primal. Yeah. It's part of our DNA, you know, like our opening day for deer, you know, archery season is a couple days from now. And um, I'm going to go and shoot the bow here in a little bit and get tuned up a little bit. And I'm going to move a stand this afternoon and I'm looking forward to it. And if I don't see a deer, I'm, I'll probably walk to my truck pretty happy. Um, but when I do shoot a deer, my mouth waters, it's primal. It's built into our DNA. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that's part of it too, because we spend so much time confined in these, within these walls, you know, and, um, we're still at the, at the end of the day, we're still, we got a little caveman left in this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's definitely something to that. I, I truly believe that. Well, last year was the first year in a long time. I didn't get a deer and, um, it was a really disappointing season. I mean, I spent a lot of pleasant days out in the, in the woods, but, um, but not getting a deer made the whole thing a disappointment. So, so I'm not beyond that. Um, <laughs> uh, but there's um, so I mean I think two of my most memorable experiences in my lifetime hunting were one time as a youth sitting on a hillside in the woods overlooking a little pond, and there was a shelf of ice. The ice was, it was in November. Ice was just forming, and uh, a family of beavers was playing on the ice. And and um, and they were playing tag. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. These little, you know, sure. they were about half size by that time, you know, and they were jumping up and down off this ice shelf and chasing each other and then jumping back in the water. And I sat there for about two hours and watched them play. And it just like that. I was about ten sure. years old. That was like yesterday. And uh, yeah, that's that's the stuff. We, I live for that stuff. I love it, man. Mm-hmm. That's that's why I'm out there. Frankly, that's it right there. Yeah. Yeah, but you wouldn't go out if there wasn't something to hunt. <laughs> well, it's a good it's a good excuse to go watch that stuff. You know, as far as the spring goes, you know, I've got a water lease. I always talk to the farmer and to let me leave the water in there until mid-March, which is some years easier than others. But the number of birds that come through in the migration, you know, northward migration is much more dense. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'll be out in a flooded cornfield and see sea ducks out there that are pushing up to Lake Michigan and they just stop to take a break. But, um, you know, taking a camera out for guys that want to do that, taking a camera out, investing in a camera. I mean, you can get a really nice camera with a good lens for about the same price as a really good waterfowl shotgun. Um, And you can buy a used one and save a lot of money. And believe me, the used ones anymore, the way they clean them up, I mean, there's no reason not to. But um, that's one of the things I've tried to do more often. Um, And it's really gratifying, you know, to sit there and get a great shot of a something coming in full plumage, you know, breeding plumage. And that gets me out there too. I've been doing that a lot the last few years, but. Well, you've got some great photography on your website. So for, for anybody who's still listening at this late point in the show, um, go to England outdoors and uh, check out that photography. It's, it's really incredible. So thank you. Thank you, Jay, for, for this conversation. And it's always good to talk to you. I hope it's been a great pleasure. I appreciate it. And uh, anytime, I'd, I'd look forward to doing it again sometime. All right. Well, we'll do that. Take care. Yep, you too. Take care.